0: Welcome to the Breed Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Bethesda, Maryland, to discuss remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19.
1: So my name is John Beigel. I'm the Associate Director uh, for Clinical Research in the Division of Microbiology, Infectious Disease, which is one of the divisions of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. I am trained uh, both in infectious disease and critical care. Great, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, John. Today we'll be discussing your
0: yeah. yeah today we'll be discussing your interesting paper published in the NEJM on May twenty second, twenty twenty. The paper was entitled "Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID 19 a preliminary report. So maybe you could go ahead and just share for us what the motivation or
1: rationale for the study. Yeah, we actually started discussing whether we should conduct a study in mid-January, and this was before there were any cases in the U.S. And the CDC was concerned about travelers that were returning that might bring coronavirus with them, Um, and at that time, we didn't know exactly how we could set up a a study for such an infrequent uh, event, Um, but by early February, uh, we started seeing uh, cases and and some small clusters uh, within the U.S., um, and it was clear that uh, we needed to establish uh, a, a treatment trial. Um at that time there's no established uh treatment. Um we evaluated all the putative therapeutics um and REMdesivir was the therapeutic that we thought had the most uh, potential. Um and it had been used in Ebola, it had a, a reasonable safety database uh, behind it and there was data supporting remdesivir in other uh coronaviruses um so with that we uh decided we would set up a, a randomized treatment uh, trial for remdesivir versus a placebo uh control um we started this the 6th of february um and Oh, in about just over 2 weeks we were able to get the protocol written um approved by the IRB uh submitted uh, under an IND to the FDA um and given the safe to proceed from the FDA and our first subject was enrolled on February 21st um at the time as you recall there were still uh, very limited uh, cases, and, and uh, we targeted some of the uh, regional referral centers where we thought cases would go on. But uh, but as there started becoming more and more cases, uh, we engaged more and more uh, institutions. So by the end, we actually had um, uh, 60 sites, uh, 73 uh total locations but like 60 sites across uh, uh 10 countries uh that were able to conduct the study um, and uh in a in a very short amount of time of 58 days we were able to enroll uh 1063 uh subjects into this uh, study
0: yeah, that was rather impressive in terms of, as you said, your enrollment date uh, started February 21st. You concluded the study uh, just under two months and uh, by April 19th, mm-hmm. and uh, the data was published uh, May 22nd. So that's a lot of work, and uh, kudos to both you and your team for uh, getting on this so quickly and uh, working on it so expeditiously to get us these findings. So let's get down to uh, the study. Um, so what were your study objectives um, uh, when using remdesivir for treatment of COVID nineteen,
1: yeah. So, so our we we had some experience from prior influenza studies about endpoints to use for respiratory diseases, and and we started with uh, the idea of using an ordinal scale for for outcomes. Um, we originally had an ordinal scale measured at day 15 and and it is a it's an 8 point ordinal scale it's uh reflects different stages of uh of of the clinical status ranging from death uh to uh and and then the the most of your clinical would be uh, on the vent or on ECMO all the way up to uh outpatient with no limitations so the original endpoint was a, a day 15 ordinal scale um when we wrote the study there was very limited data to base this on uh, so we used ex- our experience from flu studies but as more and more data became available we were concerned that the course might be longer than 15 days and that we might not be able to measure a meaningful difference at day 15 so uh, we actually changed our primary endpoint during the study to be du- duration of uh, duration to recovery, and we defined recovery as one of the top three categories on that uh, ordinal scale. Um, at, when we changed, um, we hadn't seen any data. Um, it was actually recommended by our statisticians. We only had 73 people uh enrolled uh, at that time um so it was um a change that we felt we needed to make because of prior uh, because of other data that was emerging but it wasn't based on anything uh that we we evaluated um so that was our primary objective we kept the ordinal scale at day 15 as our key secondary uh, objective and then we had multiple other uh, secondary objectives, including uh, duration of hospitalization, duration of mechanical ventilation, duration, uh time to death, uh, those uh, sorts of uh, secondary criteria.
0: Okay, so to recap, your primary outcome became a uh, time to recovery, and as you mentioned, the top three ordinal points, and then your initial primary outcome became your secondary outcome, uh, and that was. Um, the difference in uh, ordinal scale at day 15. So, I mean, th- th- that's a pretty big change in a study, uh, in a randomized trial, um, but you were pretty frank in the uh, the paper itself, and-, and you gave the rationale for why you needed to make that change. Um, and then James obviously agreed with that and felt it didn't compromise the study. Maybe you could just get into the details as to why your statistician felt it so important to make that change, and as yeah. you had mentioned, uh, the, um, the, the this study was uh, was being designed almost as though it was being uh, rolled out, and because of the need to get this data out there, so I think it would probably be understandable to understand why you made this change.
1: Sure. Uh, so the the change was uh, based on several sets of data. There was uh, a WHO uh, meeting where they uh, reviewed uh, data that. Uh, was coming out of uh, China, and, and there you know, the, uh, the uh, duration of illness was described more as 21 days, maybe uh, longer. Uh, the uh, And then there was the Kaletra uh, paper that came out. Um, and that actually showed similar concerns, that, that maybe the duration of illness was longer than we had planned. And so we used some of the data from Kaletra. Our statisticians did. Modeling uh, and showed that there that you could actually have a meaningful difference a clinically meaningful difference, but you might not detect it if you picked the wrong day um, so if if you're good uh, and uh, and you know exactly where to pick uh, there is some efficiency gained by uh, the ordinal scale on a particular day um, but Uh, if you don't have data to base those decisions and you pick wrong, uh, that you could actually conduct a study, have uh, um, a meaningful uh, difference, but you wouldn't detect it because you picked the wrong day. So based on that modeling data, uh, uh, we uh, were very convinced, uh, uh, we were concerned uh, that maybe we were picking too early and we were uh convinced that we needed to to change um i do think in a diseases such as flu that where you, you have enough data uh to make those decisions that changing your primary endpoint uh midway through the study is uh is a larger concern um when you're trying to start a study, you know, within a few weeks uh, after uh, af- after the emergence of a disease, uh, before it's even declared a pandemic, and, and you recognize you don't have enough data, I think it's the nature of the the situation where uh, you you pick what you think is appropriate, but then you adjust as more data becomes available, and that's exactly what we did.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, There is one question that some may raise in terms of the power calculation uh, for the power of the study. Uh, Maybe you could comment on that. Because I would imagine that your initial um, power calculation was based on the initial primary outcome, which then became your secondary outcome.
1: Yeah, our our initial power calculation... um, and uh, did become our secondary outcome. And we, when we originally designed the study, we we envisioned this as a study that we would enroll several patients a day. Uh, we never envisioned the pace of enrollment uh, that that we we had. Um, so the, the the power was designed for 400 recoveries. Um, so uh, that would be somewhere in the range of 550, 600. People that hit that recovery endpoint in a 28-day period of, of time. Uh, there was the original plan to do a sample size reestimation um, after 100 subjects had recovered, um, um, but uh, as I said, that was that was planned based on uh, anticipating enrolling a few people uh, a day. Uh, We had as many as uh, 63 uh, enrolled in one day. We had uh, about a two-week period of time where we were consistently above 35 uh, a day. And we were going to be done with the study before those 100 people uh, uh, could get through uh, a day 28, and we could do a blinded sample size re-estimation. Um, So with that, we said, you know, let's enroll for several more uh, weeks to make sure that we uh, have sufficient data because we, we, again, don't have enough data to make these decisions. Um, uh, That uh, it would let us get more granular detail about some important subgroups of the different ordinal uh, categories. Um, So we actually... Uh, continued enrollment up until, uh, as you said earlier, April 19th. And at that time, we ended up with 1,063 people enrolled.
0: Well, and that's rather impressive. And thanks for adding all those extra details, which makes the study so impactful. So let's get down into your study methods. And maybe you could just tell us briefly what your study methods were and how they addressed any limitations that you knew in previous studies.
1: Yeah. So, so uh, again, I mean, there really are no previous studies. So, so we were uh, trying to uh, d- develop it without prior data to make these uh, decisions. Um, our study methods uh, were uh, that it was multi It was blinded. Uh, the there is a, a placebo uh, for remdesivir use that. Uh, But uh, we actually had some supply issues for the placebo. Um, So some sites, mainly in Europe, actually had to use saline as placebo. And when when that occurred, uh, we used opaque bags to cover the the infusion bag and the infusion uh, tubing. Um, The uh, uh, stratification occurred by site. Uh, It occurred um, by Severity of illness. We matched our severity of illness uh, to align with uh, the Remdesivir study that was being conducted in China. Um, so that had severe category, meaning uh, that they were hypoxic, um, on they were on mechanical ventilation, um, or mild-moderate category, which meant they didn't, they weren't hypoxic, they weren't tachypnic. Um, and we, so we stratified based on severity, we stratified based on site, uh, and the, uh, uh, when people were enrolled, they were randomized. Um, uh, they received up to 10 days of remdesivir whenever they were discharged. Um, it was, uh, they, they stopped the remdesivir. Uh, so they didn't need to finish it at home or they didn't need to come back for any additional infusions. Uh, And then we had uh, follow-up through day 28, um, which early, uh, again, seemed like it was going to be a sufficient duration of of, of follow-up. I think that's the description for the methods. Great. So let's
0: uh, dive into your key findings. So why don't you go through your primary findings uh, and how you interpreted those findings?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so our uh primary findings uh, the 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 first thing I would would uh emphasize is that this is a preliminary uh, report. Uh, we did find it important to um get data uh, out there. Uh we um uh, we we actually had a DSMB uh that uh reviewed the data one week after the study was fully enrolled and at that point they had noticed a difference in uh recovery they had noticed a, a difference in mortality and they uh recommended that we be unblinded at that point in time when we saw the data uh we uh were we thought we needed to uh offer treatments to those that were initially randomized to placebo um and we, we we too were impressed with the difference in uh in, in outcomes um so we those that were randomized to placebo uh were able to uh to receive uh, remdesivir if they were still in the hospital and still clinically uh, uh, were in a Clinical state that would uh, benefit from uh, possibly benefit from remdesivir. Um, the uh, so so this is a preliminary report. Um, uh, so uh, the full report will uh, be uh, the database will be locked in June. The report will come out uh, in uh, July um but uh this was a, a way to get some data out there so clinicians understood the results of the trial and, and could uh, assess the value when they considered whether to treat people with with remdesivir. Um so the the primary outcome uh was uh time to recovery. Uh, it was in the entire uh study uh that we were at recovery at, at the time that the DSMB had unblinded us. Uh, that uh, the median time to recovery was 15 days in placebo, 11 days in the remdesivir arm. And that gives a, a hazards ratio or a recovery uh, ratio of uh, uh, 1.3. Um, which is uh, a, a p-value of uh, less than 0.001. Um, we also looked at the, the ordinal scale to, at day 15. We had, uh, as we changed that from the primary, we listed that as our key secondary, so the, the secondary that we don't need to account for multiple comparisons, and that actually had an odds ratio of 1.5, and uh, P value of 0.001. So, so both uh, really show a clinical benefit uh, in clinical status at day 15 and time to recovery uh, for those treated with uh, remdesivir. Uh, the 14-day mortality rate was 11.9% and that decreased to 7.1%. Um, so, um, uh, that was a hazard ratio of 0. Uh, 0.7. So, uh, we, we, you know, we think the, across multiple metrics, at least these three that we've looked at, um, so far, uh, that, uh, that, uh, there is a clear benefit to those that received, uh, remdesivir. Um, we are going to look at all the secondary endpoints for uh the uh the full analysis in in July um and I think that will help us understand some of the subgroups more so we reported on some of the subgroups in the in the manuscript um but um but I would would caution about uh overinterpreting until we see the the full data set. because uh, I think that full data set will really help us understand the the the, the value of those uh of worm desivere in different groups. Uh, uh you know, duration of, of illness, certain comorbid diseases, certain severity of diseases, uh, et cetera.
0: So you mentioned that uh, the, the the benefit was seen in hospitalized patients, and, and and those are all the patients that were included in your study. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 as you stated in both uh, Figure two and Table two of your manuscript, um, there seemed to be a benefit seen specifically in those that were receiving oxygen, um, but not so much in those not receiving oxygen or those with the uh, more severe disease, such as uh, being uh, intubated or are receiving high flow. And you attributed part of that to the fact that those other study arms are possibly smaller compared to the uh, study arm that was receiving, and not the study arm, but the group that was receiving oxygen. Yeah. Maybe you could just comment on that a bit more because some people may walk away from your paper thinking, oh, all hospitalized patients should receive remdesivir. Yeah. However, based on your subgroup analysis, it would appear that the, the most benefit seem to be those receiving oxygen and not so much
1: the the other groups well i i i would i would phrase it slightly different um i i agree the group that uh, benefited the most seemed to be the group that uh received uh that were hospitalized on oxygen, oct- the ordinal scale uh category five uh, as it's listed in the in the paper and that had the largest recovery uh rate uh, ratio of 1.47 um but those that were uh not on uh oxygen had a recovery rate of uh, 1.38 those that were on high flow had a recovery rate of 1.2 um so there's still um, there there still seems to be value in that uh the the numbers in those categories start getting small. Um, and you're right with the smaller categories that, uh, that, uh, that the p value, uh, might, uh, decrease. But I, I, I do think that there's probably some value in those, those groups. Now, the sickest category, those that, were ordinal scale 7 which means on the vent or on ECMO uh, at uh, at admission uh they had a recovery rate ratio of uh, 0.95 and an odds ratio of 1.04 um so uh on that uh, it doesn't uh it it's not clear that um, let me rephrase that Um, we were not able to demonstrate a difference in our study uh, in that population uh, for those that were treated with remdesivir. Um, There are multiple secondary endpoints, though, that I would want to examine uh, to really fully understand uh, that group. Uh, So, again, we are dealing with preliminary data and... uh, not all the patients uh, have uh, completed recovery. And I really want to see the secondary endpoints of the full data set before we would make any big statements about the value of an uh, severe in that sickest uh, group.
0: Okay, so th- 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 so basically what you're saying is that for patients on high flow or those not receiving any oxygen, maybe with the uh, a larger sample size, which you think you have in the... The study, you think those confidence intervals may narrow down so that it does become significant?
1: I I, I think anytime we start dividing a large population uh, into small groups, the confidence intervals will tend to get larger. Uh, the uh, the The study outcomes were the total population, so I think that that there was benefit there and. We have to interpret the the smaller subgroups understanding the size limitations. And I don't know whether we will uh, show statistical significance, um, but I would argue that uh, that doesn't, because we're looking at a subgroup analysis, that we don't need to uh, demonstrate each of these uh, statistical significance in order to understand the benefit of remdesivir.
0: Gotcha. Um, so someone may counter to that statement and say, well, there, there was study, um, uh, the study, the VAST study, where there was a suggestion that you know a subgroup benefited from it, but it was only in a subsequent large trial where they found that there actually was no benefit, and the initial benefit was seen or thought to have been seen in the, the subgroup analysis or secondary outcome analysis. And they would argue that you need to do a large multi-sensor trial focusing specifically on patients receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO in order to say conclusively that remdesivir is beneficial. What would your counter argument to
1: that be? I I, I actually would counter by saying, I think at this juncture, uh, that... Equipoise doesn't uh, exist uh, anymore. Uh, the, the the drug is available under an EUA that uh, that he, uh, that uh, that I don't think Equipoise uh, exists, and the ability to do a study uh, is probably um, limited. Uh, so we have to work with the data that that we that we have. Um, I do worry uh that our study design was not able to fully evaluate uh that population. So if you look at the median time to recovery uh and you look at the uh the uh the, the time to recovery in the uh category seven, the median time to recovery was 28 days, um, which makes it almost impossible to, uh, if that's a median, we are cutting off a, a large part of people because they they weren't followed long enough. Uh, I mean, coming back to what I said earlier, that, that when we designed the study, 28 days of follow-up seemed uh, sufficient. But I do worry that 28 days might not have been sufficient uh, in that uh, population. So I think the counter argument is based on the the, the, the data, we have to say, do do we think we're in that severe works in in COVID and, and, and would we ever be able to study that most severe population again? And I think the argument is no.
0: Okay. So let's get into uh, the key limitations um, in your study. Um, and you mentioned several in your paper. Maybe for the benefit of our audience, you could just go through them because uh, as you said um, uh, during the course of this podcast, uh, there are no real perfect studies at This study was conducted um, uh, with no previous data to inform you, but you worked against those limitations really well to come with a really outstanding study. So maybe just give us the key limitations that you identified uh, uh, while working through this uh, RCT.
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest limitation was the lack of any data about natural history and uh, treatment effects seen with remdesivir. Um, normally, you would have some data to, uh, for both of those uh, variables when you're designing a, a study, and we had none of that uh, data available. Um, so, that was the, the biggest limitation uh, when it came to uh, design. Uh, the uh, other limitation were really the uh, challenges of trying to conduct a study in the middle of a, a pandemic. Uh, and uh these were challenges when the sites uh are uh, being pulled into uh, the the research teams are being pulled into clinical care the uh multiple healthcare uh, workers are sick and uh the resources available for clinical research are are strained and the ability for uh, supplies the ability for pPE was also uh, limited, and our sites had a, an amazing ability to work through uh, those uh, limitations uh, lastly uh, i mean typically we would uh, we would um, have on site training and and the ability to, to do on site training to do on site monitoring was Limited because hospitals weren't letting non-essential staff uh, into their uh, facilities, so uh, so we had to do much of the training over the from a distance uh, over webinars um, uh, with the monitoring visits uh, being uh, also done uh, over uh, uh, remotely and and, and uh, through uh, electronic uh, methods. So all of those were challenges that we had to work through in order to get the study done in such a short period of time.
0: And we definitely commend your team for the, the getting so many patients enrolled um, in, in, in a chaotic uh, pandemic. Um, there are a few limitations that I wanted to discuss with you and uh hope you get some uh, clarity. So... Um, for uh, the category ord- ordinal scale five, we said hospitalized requiring supplemental oxygen. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific uh, protocol that um, uh, sites had to follow, or was it left to their discretion? Because some may argue that that's a bit vague. I mean, uh, were these for COPD patients? where O2 stats criteria maybe 88 to 92 percent? Did they use this, um, a pulse oximetry monitor, which is not as accurate as co-oximetry? Um, what was the criteria for requiring supplemental oxygen and, and was this left to provider discretion?
1: Yeah, the the, the short answer is it was left to provider uh, discretion. We we actually discussed at length whether we should try to harmonize um, uh, some criteria. And when we are considering a, a small study, I think uh, you can make those arguments when we we're designing a study over 10 different countries and uh 60 different sites uh we thought it would be very difficult to uh try to develop criteria that uh that would be applicable and acceptable uh, to all so the fundamentally the, that category was those people on oxygen that We'll put on oxygen at the clinicians' uh, or investigators' uh, discretion. Gotcha. And then the other
0: point was uh, missing data. And uh, in table one, you had mentioned that uh, uh, the baseline score was missing for a total of 46 out of the 1,000 patients. And then in table two, um, as your statisticians uh, correctly inferred early in uh, the study, um, you'll uh, be seeing a fair amount of data. Uh, for patients with both baseline and day 15 score data. Yep. I think it was 104 in the rindesivir arm and 111 in the placebo arm. Maybe you could comment on that because uh, that was uh, really insightful on the part of your statisticians to uh, note that and work on that uh, and changing the primary outcome. But maybe it'd be useful for future uh, investigators um, when they're planning their studies to consider uh, what effect that may have on their studies.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe we didn't describe it well enough in the in, in the paper. So uh, you have to remember the database was locked one week after the last subject was uh, enrolled. Um, so the the data that's missing doesn't mean that it will be missing in the final database. That that means it was missing. Uh, one week after the last subject uh, was enrolled, uh, so so there is, uh, a, as you know, a, a delay in data entry, um, especially with sites that are overwhelmed. Uh, that sometimes they take several days to get the the, the data uh, entered, and then anything all those subjects had no ability to get through day fifteen um, because it was only one week after the last subjects were enrolled. So there's a number of people that were on study, hadn't hit day 15, or on study, obviously did have their baseline visits that just wasn't uh, entered. So until we see that final analysis, um, I won't know the, 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 the true incidence of missing data.
0: Actually, I think that's really important, and thanks for clarifying that. So let's jump into um, what these findings mean for clinical practice, and maybe I'll start off from the perspective of a pulmonologist or a person working in the ICU. What do you think um, they should take away from your study, and how should they use remdesivir, and in which patients should they uh, use it while awaiting uh, the final results of your paper that should come out in July or August?
1: Yeah. So so I think our study demonstrated that there is value in remdesivir for people that are hospitalized with evidence of lower respiratory tract uh, disease. That was our study population. Um so I think remdesivir should be uh used in that population uh as they are uh, able. Uh, there are supply issues with remdesivir. There are distribution issues uh, under the uh, EUA that might limit uh, the ability to use it, but I do think uh, that remdesivir should be used in that uh, population. Um, I would argue that remdesivir should be used in the that, that full population, including those that are on the vent or mechanical ventilation, uh, especially until we see the uh, full uh, database, that that I wouldn't want to make broad statements about that sickest uh, population until we saw the full uh, data set. Um, Concurrent with our study, or a few days after our study, there was uh, another study of remdesivir that showed five versus 10 days, and, and that study was mainly those hospitalized um, but with less uh, severe uh, 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 population. Um, But that showed that uh, five days and 10 days were equivalent. So combining these two together, I would say those that are hospitalized with evidence of lower respiratory tract disease should receive at least five days of uh, remdesivir. Uh, Those on the vent uh, may require longer duration of therapy. I I don't think you can judge the 5 versus 10 days based uh, for that sickest uh, population. Um, And those that are immunosuppressed or on some of these drugs that might cause immunosuppression, uh, like the anticytokine therapies that are being evaluated, um, probably should, uh, uh, may benefit from uh, more than uh, five days and may benefit from the full 10 days uh, duration of therapy also.
0: Gotcha. So uh, I was just thinking, um, looking back at those figures that you had in figure two, um, for almost all the groups, uh, you get a fairly decent um uh, deviation of the rim from the placebo, whereas for the uh, the group that's receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO, the lines appear to cross. Um what did
1: you take away from that? Yeah, it 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 it's it's interesting and and uh, again I would really want to see the full uh database. Um there, the the question uh is i mean it looks like there's some maybe some separation but then those lines uh cross um i i don't know if uh until i see the final database until i see the virology and if i know that group is still shedding at that point i do worry whether you know, there's a possibility that uh, uh that that they require longer duration of, of therapy. Um so again until I saw the full database I, I wouldn't want to read into uh that figure uh alone. Actually,
0: and and then if you were to find um, that uh, remdesivir was not beneficial in those sick patients, would you attribute that to the fact that the therapy was initiated too late, or that there's a whole host of other factors such as you know critical illness, ARDS that's um, coming into the mix that makes it impossible for remdesivir to have an effect at that time?
1: Yeah, it it is. Um it, it really depends on the totality of the of the, the data. If if there is evidence of ongoing viral replication in that group, uh then uh then I I think there might be value in uh of of remdesivir. Uh, if the uh if their viral replication has ceased and this is all uh, the uh, host response and ARDS, uh, you're right that even yeah, the most potent uh, antiviral might not benefit uh, that that group. Uh, so again, until I saw the full data set, I'm, I'm not sure I would want to speculate uh, which, which one of those is likely to be true.
0: Great, and, and do you think you'll probably have data on uh, a fair proportion of patients on viral loads, or was it routinely collected, or just? It, it, sites? It, yeah, no, it was, it
1: was routinely, it it was written into the protocol, and it was uh, asked to be collected. There were sites that uh, had limitations uh, on processing uh, that some institutions actually were requiring labs to be processed in a BSL-3, uh, which made it uh, a, a more challenging to uh, collect this because not every site has access to a BSL-3 to process these, these labs. Um, so there were some sites that were unable to, but for the most part, most sites were able to collect uh, the virology uh, specimen.
0: Great, and we look forward to that data. So some may ask questions of uh, uh, what the side effect profile of remdesivir is. And in the paper, you mentioned that a lot of the, uh, it it seems as though the placebo groups tend to have more uh, significant adverse events. But if I'm prescribing remdesivir to a patient, what side effects should I look out for?
1: Yeah, there there is data from prior studies uh, in healthy volunteers uh, and, and Ebola that would suggest increase lfts with uh with remdesivir. um in in uh, so i would say that is a potential uh side effect in our uh in our study uh it actually did not was not higher uh, uh in the uh remdesivir group um but i think i would still note it as a possible uh, side effect um, the the majority of side effects uh, seen in our study were actually less common in the uh, remdesivir uh, arm than in the uh, placebo uh, arm. Uh, it is challenging to sort out drug effect versus underlying uh, disease, um, and uh, uh, almost every subject had numerous uh, AEs and. Many had SAEs, uh, and it is hard to uh, sort out th- uh signal uh, from, from remdesivir. Um, but at least uh, in, in our uh, data set, uh, we did not see any uh, signal that we thought was uh, attributable uh, to uh, remdesivir uh, alone. Gotcha.
0: So um what additional studies have you got planned uh, uh, the 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 way the paper was written it, it it definitely sounds like this is just one part of uh, a number of stages of your studies that, that are going to be published so maybe you could give our audience uh, um uh, some anticipation of what to expect and uh, yeah. what you guys have uh, in the pipeline
1: Yeah um so so you are right the the act uh, study is designed as a platform study that we can test multiple putative, uh, therapeutics, remdesivir versus placebo was, uh, act one, but we've already started act two. Um, act two is a uh, remdesivir versus, uh, remdesivir plus bersitinib. Um, uh, the bersitinib is a JAK inhibitor, uh, and, uh, is upstream of multiple of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that have been described in, uh, in uh, the uh, COVID. Uh, so uh, we think this is uh, a possible uh, mechanism to decrease the inflammation and hopefully improve outcomes. Um, while we are pleased with the outcomes uh, of, from from the ACT-1 study and the, the decrease in hospital stay. It is still 11-day hospital stay. It is still a 7% 14-day mortality. Um, we think we can do better and we think that we need to pursue other options, either combination antivirals um, or antivirals plus uh, targets for some of the inflammation cascade, some of the coagulation cascade, um, and ACT-2 is the first iteration of that where we will look at uh, antiviral plus uh, a, a medication targeting the inflammatory uh, cascade, which is the bear So,
0: yeah, you mentioned mortality, and, and, and that may be um, a question that uh, some uh, clinicians raise that the... Uh, use of uh, time to recovery isn't uh, as hard an outcome as mortality what would your response to that be and um, uh, do, do you think uh, you'll be able to get mortality as a hard co- outcome in the future
1: yeah I, I when we when we originally designed the study uh, we weren't sure what the mortality rate was uh, and the mortality rate was actually described a little lower So our original estimates for uh, a a study with a mortality endpoint was going to be much larger than the the study we we had. Um, So I agree, mortality is a much harder, um, uh, much less ambiguous uh, outcome uh, than time to recover. And and if possible, the the studies, uh, when they do mortality, that is... Uh, always uh, uh, the best endpoint to use. We just didn't think it, we could use it in, in the ACT study for sample size reasons. Uh, we will continue to evaluate mortality in our studies. Um, however, we are in Act Two. We are using the the, the time of um, to recovery as our primary outcome because we still think that has uh, important uh, public health uh, and individual subject, and a benefit.
0: Gotcha. So, um, John, uh, you've been very gracious with your time, and I really appreciate your uh, candor in sharing your uh, study methods and your results and some of the challenges that you faced, and more importantly, um, how you overcame them as a team. So, um, as we uh, come to the end of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to Um, maybe inform our audience of any uh, topics or any issues that we haven't covered in the podcast as yet, as well as being able to give you uh, the last word on uh, what you want to leave our audience, uh, uh, what message you want to leave our audience with. John?
1: Yeah. so so let me just close by saying the ability to get the ACT study done was only possible because of multiple large groups coming uh, together Multiple networks that we've worked with in the past, uh, multiple individuals, uh, multiple uh, leaders from uh, countries uh, across the world coming together in order to get this done in such a a fast manner. Um, So first, let me uh, make sure that that group is recognized for their uh, for for their contributions because it, it it is not a single institution that can can get this uh, done uh, and the other thing I would close on is saying uh, reiterating that while remdesivir did provide good clinical benefits um, and decreased time to recovery uh, decreased. Uh, mortality that we have to do better um, and uh, we have to keep finding ways to uh, uh, evaluate the, the pathophysiology uh, find therapeutics that will target that in order to keep uh, decreasing uh, the morbidity and mortality that comes with COVID-19
0: Thank you very much John, I really appreciated your time
1: uh, Thank you for having me A big
0: thank you to Dr. Beigel and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.